Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host Neil and today we are joined by Ian Benevis. Ian was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in Operation Just Cause in Panama in 1989, which was part of the war on drugs. After the war, Ian joined pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and witnessed firsthand the rise of synthetic opioids and SSRI-based meds for treating anxiety and PTSD. In the years since, Ian has been healing himself and other veterans of trauma using plant-based medicines and psychedelics of Latin American origin. In the previous episode, Ian gave a broad overview of his experiences and work to a room full of people and took many questions. In this and the next section, we are one-on-one on our couch for all the additional questions I have for him. In this part of the conversation, I ask him about his experience of war. He talks about his days of training for and flying the Black Hawk and being deployed in Panama. He shares some of the experiences of fighting a war that leaves so many people in trauma for decades to come. We will discuss the politics and philosophy of the war machine, its intent, and its unsustainability. Then we will enter deeply into talking about Ian's own trauma that arose not from war, but his personal childhood experiences and he will talk about the ways in which he has used plant medicines and practice and seen himself heal from this trauma over the years. We then talk about the medication that's commonly prescribed today to anxiety and PTSD patients, why it doesn't ultimately work, and what changes we wish to see in drug policies that can move us forward towards a more sensible world. Okay, <clears throat> so um, the way that I'm going to do this is you sent me the audio recording of your Molotov seminar. Yeah. And that's going to be tacked on to the front, to the beginning, and that serves as a really good overview and summary. So today's conversation is going to be only all of the other questions that I have that were not covered. Okay, in, cool. Kind of in that like time. A extension or continuation. Yeah. Of it. So it's going to assume, yeah, you... No, this context the person shared. And then yeah. Um, okay, so the, the first um, bunch of topics among the three, I've sort of tentatively grouped them together and called them war, trauma, and, and meds. <clears throat> the second medicine, right? uh, is called healing using plant medicines and practices. And the third is called insights into life. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Okay. <laughs> so I uh, just sit on, turn on the do not disturb mode. Okay. So just to check in, it's like almost five. Yeah. And uh, we could be going to like right about up around six thirty. Yeah, and then we'll go after dinner as well for a while. Yeah, definitely. I'm yeah. just, just checking to see. It doesn't feel like I need to take a leak, so I'm gonna go with that feeling. No, you can go. You can get up, take a leak. You're saying anytime, yeah, but I'm obviously, the goal of this though is to allow you have to have the chunks of the topics yeah, yeah. cleanly. But if you, for example, like need to take a leak, that part I can edit out very okay. easily. Like what you're saying is you can just like stop and I'll be like, 
Then you ask yeah. the question, you just be like, okay, and then you <laughs> pause it after saying, I, I mean, I've done podcasts that I mean, are more... it's not very formal. This yeah. is not live. So if yeah. you just tell me, hey, Neil, I need to take a leak, then I'll just go back and delete that part and... Got it, know. got it, got it. Well, as I'm saying, I've done different yeah. levels of podcasts, more of them than remote. Some people with me, you know, exactly. Yeah, Some people yeah. are like, they're yeah. trying to do the in-camera edit, right, as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so cool. But no, this, I aim for this conversation to be as sort of natural as possible. Okay. You can't really avoid the fact that there's like a thing sitting here. But other than that, I just want it to be as natural as possible. If later on you decide that there was something that you shared that you don't want to be on the podcast, you can just let me know and I'll I'll, I'll remove that. Awesome. Well, then in that regard, I'll Mm. try to be as informal, but still obviously communicate clearly and efficiently. You know, be like just informal in how I'm talking to you. Absolutely. So So, uh, a couple of these questions I have asked you before in the time when we met before the Malta seminar and afterwards when we were hanging out at the varsity. But I still want to ask you a couple of these again, just because I think they're interesting for the podcast. So one of these is, I just want to get a sense of when you were fighting an operation, just cause, uh, or participating when you, when you were participating (laughs) in the operation, just cause, what was the nature of that participation? What was it that you were doing? Sure. Well, I was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the Army, mm-hmm. and after finishing flight school in Fort Rucker and then doing the Black Hawk transition afterwards, I hadn't been in Fort Ord, California, which is south of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's now Cal State Monterey. I hadn't been there more, definitely hadn't even been there a year. 1987, er, earlier in the year when we we actually deployed down there. And I can't remember the name of the operation they called it before it became Operation Just Cause, but hmm. we actually deployed down to Panama as a show of force mission to s- support the local uh, Black Hawk unit that was down there that just couldn't keep enough aircraft up in the sky for the mission. And so we went down there to support that and eventually you sort of realized it was all leading towards what eventually became Just Cause in uh, December of 1989, so like two and a half years after that. Hmm. And so I would rotate down there for three months, and we would be based out of Howard Air Force Base, living in these open air, open barracks, you know, hmm. a couple hundred people living in bunk beds. <laughs> for three months. Uh, uh, three months at a time, yeah, right okay. next to your buddy and right... Everybody above or below. Yeah, yeah. No air conditioning. Yeah. No even screens or anything. Then you'd have some vampire bats come into the... Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So, uh, so we rotated down there. You know, you'd come back for three months or whatever and be doing field exercises back at Fort Ord in our training center nearby, Fort Hunter Liggett, where, where the Hearst Castle is. Hmm. Uh, so... And then in, like I said, in December, late December on Christmas time of 1989, uh, we invaded Panama to reel in Noriega. Mm. So half of our Black Hawk unit at that point was already on the ground. Mm. And then the rest of us uh, came down, you know, within a couple of days. I was six months old when this was happening. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you're, you're trying to like imagine yourself in that. Yeah. That's fun. So I've asked you this before, 
But so you used to fly the Black Hawk, and you received training for this before, like somewhere else before you. Yeah, in flight school in Fort Rucker, it was nine months long, and then the Black Hawk portion of it extra was. Gosh, I can't remember the six or eight weeks, maybe six weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was it fun to fly? Fly the. Yeah, it was really amazing that after a month of actually flying the aircraft they would let you fly it by yourself so you'd have a couple weeks of ground school where you were going over the physiology of, of flying and you know things like autokinesis motion parallax these things that occur to you when you're flying vertigo mm-hmm. the, the the you know biophysics of flying how how physics affects the body and so then you would get in these small back then now you would start in a huey the kind of Vietnam era helicopter, but if, when I went through, you started in this thing called the, uh, gosh, what, what, what was it? Uh, it was the same helicopter you might see for traffic or like a beach helicopter. This looks like this little bowl, mm. super small, you know, with this tiny little mm. rotor uh, blade and uh, rotor blades, and it can fit two people inside it. So that's what we learned in. Yeah. A, a month from the time you took your first hover where you went out in a field and there's all these other helicopters from like, you know, you look like little kids, you know, all trying to hover together with your instructor pilot. Yeah. A month later, you're flying that thing by yourself at about, you know, 100 feet above the ground. Yeah. 60, 70 miles an hour. And yeah. So it was incredible. Super freedom. You feel like you're, you know, yeah. like a, like a, a bird. And, and with a helicopter, you can go in any you know, direction you want to go in. But did it make you nervous that you were carrying other people and if you made mistakes, it's, you know, you guys are going to die? <laughs> That's a really good question, you know. Yeah. And in going to Panama, I, the really, the war part of it was really, you know, where there's lots of shooting going on happened really in just the first you know, day or two. And mm-hmm. after that, it was just more cleanup operations by the time I got there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I flew like over 600 hours and... In my recent, you know, I know we'll jump around in different topics here, but my recent medicine work of working on all that, it's been a big surprise to find out how heavy the burden of every time you took off in a helicopter, how your life and everyone else's life uh, was dependent on one another. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be a heavier burden from the perspective of releasing it now. Yeah. Know, doing my work. Yeah, I see. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to... Just read this second question because I felt like I managed to word it well. Okay. <clears throat> Can you share some war experiences of yourself and others that illustrate why it causes such trauma, depression, and suicidal thoughts? Yes, absolutely. For myself, really, no. Like I said, I didn't not been in Iraq or Afghanistan, and Panama was this really big special ops operations, you know, mission. And uh, the actual shooting part was the first day or two right before I got there. But I've got lots of friends who are veterans who have been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And some examples, and of course these are, you know, relayed anonymously about the identities, but this is stories people shared with me. A friend who's a Marine in Iraq was on a mounted vehicle. I want to say a fifty cal. Uh, what? I didn't want to say because I mean I don't know what the weapon was. Maybe oh, it, was, okay. it could have been so an M60. And it, 
So let me just strike that out. What yeah. what my what my mouth just first said there. But anyway, he had a you know high enough power rifle on for the vehicle. Yeah, and they were next to a hotel, and this fourteen uh, year old around that age kid came running out of the hotel. Yeah. with this thing on his back. Yeah. So my friend swung the rifle around and shot him and killed him. And it turned out it was a young kid, you know, carrying like an old style camcorder mm. on his shoulder, and. He didn't. He had not, in the process of that, disobeyed any orders, nor had he violated the rules of engagement. So, from the military's perspective, Geneva Conventions, he hadn't done anything wrong. But of course, that's the horrible reality of war: is yeah. that you don't have the luxury of the time to, you know, decide if it's an RPG or it's an old school camcorder, and you have to take action. Yeah. Or that's the you know choice you have. One has to make, and. Yeah. Uh, I know another veteran who was in the army in Iraq, and their first experience in firing their weapon was uh, killing two insurgent kids, two, killing two children mm-hmm. that were strapped to the front of an insurgent's vehicle mm-hmm. with, with weapons. Yeah. So some kind of impossible game of chicken. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, so he... He shot them, and another friend who was in the army in uh, Afghanistan, and uh, same kind of thing, you know, in a more urban environment, and something, you know, got his attention in a field of view where they were engaged with people, right, and he swung his rifle around, because you had to shoot first when you noticed that person, and it turned out it was a, you know, unarmed civilian child who was just in the, uh, you know, in the frame. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so those are the kind of things that uh, weigh on people, separate from any other variations on that, but just where you, you know, have to make a choice. It, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to make that. that it, it creates, in that way, like a form of survivor's guilt, right? Yeah. And, and you made a choice that only, you know, mm. that, that maybe God should be making. The, the other angle that I was kind of thinking about, and I've mentioned this to you before, um, is that the experiences that you talk about, that you describe of going out and fighting in war is so far removed from the day-to-day experiences of people like us, living in societies like, like us, that it feels like, well, number one, I just want to get a sense or communicate a sense of what it is like to be fighting a war. And we see it on TV, but it's kind of like on this TV screen, it's happening somewhere else, and it's kind of like watching a movie. You don't really... I mean, you registered the facts of it, but I feel like we are... we Even after we see all these images and stories, it's very hard for us to even begin to imagine what it's like to be there and to fight. Um, sure. Again, I want to emphasize for myself, right, like my not having personal experience in Iraq or Afghanistan, just of what that's like for myself, but other people and what other veterans have shared with me, and, you know, my experience of just flying a helicopter is that, number one, when you're, 
you're in a constant state of hyperarousal. It used yeah. to be in war, you had fronts and you had, would fight and then people would take breaks and then they come back and fight some more. Now it's 24-7. You can't tell, you know, uh, an opposite fighting force from, from civilians. Yeah. Uh, wherever you are, people can mortar you at any time. Mm. You know? And so you're constantly... Uh, there's no front lines and you're constantly at war 24-7, so you're in a constant state of hyperarousal. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the, the, the part that's really challenging. An example would be in World War II, and some apparently the worst fighting, like in Italy, uh, you know, so against the, you know, the, the Nazis or the fascists in Italy, mm. they would, like, fight, but they will fight for, like, two weeks, Brutal, bloody fighting, you know, heavy casualties. But then they could get on a boat once that was, you know, over yeah. and go out on the Adriatic and, like, I don't know, you know, uh, smoke cigars and yeah, yeah, sip yeah. whiskey and take a break and yeah. then go back and fight more. So now fighting is 24-7 and you're going to go do it for six deployments. Like someone connected with me recently, hmm. 13 deployments. I'm like, how's that even possible? <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you told me before that a lot of these people um, fighting are almost always on some combination of drugs. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit more about... Yeah, that's probably uh, what... a good topic for a book called, like, The Secret of Drugs and, you know, The Secret History of Drugs yeah. in, uh, in Warfare. And... and It's kind of funny, actually, because if you think about it, the Operation Just Cause was supposed to be an arm of the... <laughs> Of the, of the war on drugs. Yeah, yeah well, like, governments have shown that they want to be able to control the drug international drug supply because it's yeah. 8% of the world's GDP. If that hadn't been going in the last Great Recession, they, they would have become a depression. So mm -hmm. they want to be able to control it, and Noriega was part of our infrastructure that he just went a little rogue and a little off on his own, and we had to go and, and, and reel him in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so what what kinds yeah. of drugs are these people? Um, yeah, so really, in World War Two would be when we you know we went from trench warfare in World War One. It was never going to change. It appeared at the time. Mm. Then the Blitzkrieg, the offensive shifted back to the offensive in World War Two, and that was with the methamphetamine that the Germans had invented. You know, pharmaceutical companies back in the early nineteen hundreds, whatever. And uh, so every Air Force pilot that's been flying since then from the U.S. and any of our engagements has been on methamphetamine. And there's a history of people fighting wars and getting, you know, different medicines or intoxicants to get them to fight or allow them to fight. And mm. now it's things like Ambien, which is, you know, this hypnotic to potentially help people sleep since you're fighting all the time. And so people are on these meds while they're over there already serving to get sleep and they're you know in some ways disassociated while they're on the meds or these are hypnotic so they just have all these really variable effects and mm -hmm. uh yeah so it's not even when they wait till they get home yeah they're already on them in theater i see and they so. must have some way of getting their hands on these drugs while they're in a foreign country so they must be local suppliers to these troops. Oh, the ambient they're getting from the military itself. The uh -huh. military is prescribing them. Yeah. Now, people might be getting other meds. In Vietnam, they did. They were getting cannabis and, mm. you know, 
opium or heroin locally, right? <coughs> now, because the government's providing the meds for the fighting, yeah, they wouldn't have to go and even get those. The government doesn't provide the meth, though. Yes, it does. It, yes, of course, it prescribes it. I mean, the, you know, Adderall is just two different. Okay, it's okay. a mixture of two different, you know, uh, versions, right, of amphetamine, you know, left yeah, and yeah, right-handed yeah. and stuff. So. Uh, yeah, but it's nothing prescribed. quite as prescribed. How else can you fly if you're from Diego Garcia and you're gonna go fly your bomber? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. For I see ten hours or four, twelve hours, you're gonna get refueled in the air. This is how you can fly all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So that they have they have to be yeah on I don't know, have to be. I'm saying that the military's thought is that they have to be on these things to allow them. To do those missions, and it's no different than a truck driver taking meth to drive his, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. stuff across country. Exact but same concept. They wouldn't be prescribed something quite as strong as, let's say, cocaine. No, right. but they'd be prescribed methamphetamine. I mean, yeah. there's, the, you know, you can get that as a legal prescription if you have narcolepsy. Yeah. So, yeah. I see. This is the this is the irony, and I'm sure we'll talk about other stuff. The drug war, right? On one hand, you know, you have methamphetamine; it's bad, but if you get amphetamine and adderall it's cool and you have cocaine it's bad but if you get it in uh ritalin which is like the yeah, sim- yeah, yeah. most similar chemical to cocaine you know within the yeah. kind of pharmaceutical realm yeah it's bad so yeah, yeah. <laughs> where it all you, depends who your dealer is were you on any of these medications or drugs when you were in just cause so interesting question as an army pilot flying helicopters yeah. right which are short range things and we had to be at crew rest you after a certain number of hours of flying, you had to have a certain number of hours off. And it had, it had to be at least a number of hours you had flying off. So if you flew for eight hours, yeah, then you'd need to at least have eight hours off. But you know, trying to get you the rest. So we were super controlled. You couldn't even take Sudafed, any kind of like ephedrine. So I was never on anything ever the whole I time see. I was flying, ever. Okay. Uh, That's we, a good thing, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> if you were, an air, like yeah. I said, an Air Force pilot and you're flying, you know, hours yeah. and hours and hours... Yeah. That's why they would, would be on that stuff. Yeah. So, but I like in the Air Force, if you were a helicopter pod, you might not yeah, yeah. get those at all. So, yeah. yeah. I can already start to imagine that um, being so strongly, for the other um, people, being so strongly dosed through such a period of constant stress, when you come back from the war, it's going to be highly unlikely that you will be able to resume a normal drug-free life. You would become dependent on a lot of sure, these things. Yeah, you're yeah. setting up a yeah, likely avenue for more yeah. medications to be in your future. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, a lot of the trauma in your case did not arise from your experiences in war. Correct. But it had to do with your personal experiences in childhood, had to do with your sister. So this is a somewhat personal question. You don't have to answer any more than you want. But if you could share what you can about the nature of your personal trauma and the way that you have seen it heal over time using the medicines and practices, I think that would be very enlightening. I'll, I'll first talk about the importance of childhood trauma as it correlates to developing PTSD from war mm. or even say like service trauma where you didn't go to war. Yeah. And, it's, and so the, 
one of the a useful metaphor for thinking about PTSD is like a contagious disease that mm-hmm. you acquire in going to war. And if you go to war, to whatever degree you're exposed to it. So maybe if you're on a ship, maybe, you know, there's just a little safer place. You're less exposed to it than infantrymen on the ground or something. But you still get exposed to it. And there's all different, you know, ways of getting exposed to it. And so it turns out that if you have childhood trauma, you're more likely to contract PTSD and have it manifest into a really, you know, stronger or worse case of it, right? Mm. It's a natural response to go to war and have trauma, <laughs> period. But you're, if you grew up in a supportive, excuse me, positive, you know, uh, family... You have a better chance of going to war, even seeing or participating in bad things, but coming back to that positive support system and being able to reintegrate. Mm. But if you already had a broken childhood and uh, lots of difficulties, it makes it a lot harder to come back and do that. And the military also specifically targets in one way and recruits for those kind of people, which is saying, hey, you take your antisocial or improper behavior here within Mm. the context of this family and family life but you can take it in the military and go kill other people and we'll that's know, re- very interesting redirect that so in what way would you say use the word target yeah in what way would oh. you say they, it may not be explicit but no, in I don't, yeah, it's, not, it's not explicit next, it's not explicit yeah. at all i don't it, yeah it's not it's not in any way explicit it's just how yeah. you're but you would recruit, certain, people, recruit people for anything yeah you, you have a certain <laughs> recruitment procedure that that ends up selecting for individuals with you're saying to someone hey would you like to direct all that anger towards somebody else yeah (laughs) you know that's that's the level of targeting yeah 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 it's not like i'm gonna go look for angry young kids you know but there is a certain amount of you know some kid got in trouble and the judge is like you can go join the army or Mm -hmm. go to jail or something yeah yeah. that sort of happens (laughs) i see But, but the military just the army just missed its recruiting targets by a couple thousand for the first time in a very long time. Hmm. So should I go continue like to your question about yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. about so me and, and, and my trauma? Uh, right, that was really the question. Is like what? How is the medicine? How are the medicines helped me work on my trauma? Hmm. Well, if you could just briefly yeah. just state. Yeah what your trauma arose from, sure, even if sure. you do not want to describe no, it. No, no, I, I don't have any mm. challenges that I'm aware of at this point in talking about that, and that's been a big part of the work, of mm-hmm. course. I I would say I have two major traumas, two major groups. One is the death of my sister, mm. and the other is two incidents of sexual trauma. Mm. And I was uh, in second and third grade, different mm. uh, in Tennessee and Hawaii. So... Those are like the primary traumas. The first, my I was four months old, and my sister was older sister was a year and a half old, and we were in a car in Algeria with my father, who's originally from there. My mother, they met in France at university, and uh, we're back there after being married with two young babies mm-hmm. in a car accident before seatbelts, uh, and. Uh, my sister died. Oh, how old were you and your sister I was, at that I time? I was four months, and she was like a year and a half. Okay. So, uh, so right from the bat, right from the get-go, without even verbal, I have survivor's guilt. <laughs> oh, so you, 
I have I have I have abandonment. Somebody's in my life every day is now gone, and I have like the emotional resonance of my parents around this huge Mm. loss until I and then I have brothers that I wouldn't have had otherwise as the story was planned for Mm. from my parents' perspective to have two brothers instead of just an older sister because of the death of my sister. So. Yeah, the whole family dynamic was affected by that mm. incident, and it set up a family drama, family story, you know, mm. whatever. That uh, different people in our family, to different degrees, have integrated, <laughs> processed, accepted, whatever, and other people, not not as not as much. So, mm. uh, and then the other thing that. Uh, I mean, we can, you know, go back and forth these two, but, uh, yeah, and the other trauma is I was, uh, in, when I lived in Tennessee, when I was in the second grade, I was, uh, sodomized by this boy who lived in our neighborhood, this older boy who, there was three boys that were all adopted, and mm-hmm. then the father was a Protestant minister, and it was the oldest brother, the middle brother, mm-hmm. you know, they're not related, but, you know, but, like, uh, was uh, my age. This is my friend. This is like his older brother. They're all adopted. And so uh, in, I was sodomized in the bathroom of my own family's house. And, uh, you know, so I, and, and, in, and in that, uh, yeah, there's like a definite, like, Violation separate from the act, like your own house, like the place that you're supposed to be the safest. This is like the upstairs bathroom too. So, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, and so then, in, then in Hawaii, I was uh, we lived in like university housing, by next to the University of Hawaii, where my father was a professor, and uh, so like you know, kids from. Uh, Families of professors who've just moved there right from some other place all around the country, all around the world. Anyway, and I was the only uh, unwilling participant in a group of people, these kids, you know, elementary school age kids. These kids were, were older, but they forced me to have sex with this girl. I was the only unwilling participant. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was for me, I, you know, I didn't. And people were making fun of me saying that Ian effed you know mm-hmm. <laughs> well don't need to swear but this other girl were like teasing me like on the playground as it were and i was like i don't even know what that word you know implying sex even means i couldn't tell you you know what i mean if if someone had asked me like what what actually happened you know what i'm saying like what yeah. like, describing the acts and whatnot because i was in third grade so uh and uh yeah so those are the two sort of constellations of trauma that's super uh, intense, by the way. I mean, yeah. Well, it's it's a. Yeah. If you had asked me about them at you know points before I started doing this work, right? I, I would have. Yeah. I mean, it would have been impossible. I wouldn't. Yeah. The, the second sexual trauma, I didn't process until I went to Peru, and uh, I hadn't uh, thought about it in mm. you know like mm. years. <laughs> I see. <laughs> So here's something that I'm very curious about. And I was about to ask you this question anyway, but you kind of brought it up. The second... Okay, so 
maybe the death of your sister was something that from a more young age you were uh, addressing to some extent. I, I wouldn't say addressing, but it was present in your mind yeah. in a more explicit way. Like this is what happened and this is why I feel this way. But when it comes to more sexual traumas, since there's so much um, of, um, uh, what do you call it, societal uh, taboos or involved that we... Mores and uh, yeah. cultural norms. Maybe. Yeah, so that we, if we suffer these, we don't, I mean, we can feel the effects of it, but in, in our head, we don't want to really, even to ourselves... Well, Talk like, about yeah, it or acknowledge shame and it, guilt, yeah. yeah, explicitly. Oh, yeah. So, but would you say that growing up, and ultimately until you went to Peru and started doing this, would you say that this was something that you would have to uh, sort of carry or drag around the weight of, whether explicitly or implicitly? And definitely, I think like like barnacles or the proverbial, you know, proverbial piece of sand and the. Oyster shell turns into a pearl. You are carrying these things around. Yeah. And until you let go of them, you don't really know how heavy mm. they've been. You know, then, then one way it's like you're laughing and crying where you're crying because you're realizing how much you've limited yourself. And then you're laughing because you've, you know, it's <laughs> no time like the present to finally, you know, make an, make an improvement on that. Mm. Um, well, ask me the rest of the question again. I, I will oh, the rest is... of the question was... I mean, I got the answer to that. Yeah. But, I mean, I was just kind of trying to understand that, okay, so this is the period of time during which you had been sort of carrying this around. Yeah. And then when you uh, started slowly getting into this, uh, these medicines and the practices... I know that it's a whole complicated thing and it cannot be really easily summarized. But if you could touch some key points on how, in what manner you noticed uh, yourself healing. Oh, I can tell you, these, these are like, those three different events have like three different specific healing ceremonies that are connected with their first release. First, you know what I'm saying? processing of them mm -hmm. so maybe we can talk about that yeah, one yeah, in that yeah. way i'm interested so. i'm a three different specific healing ceremonies for so the first okay. one was three and a half years ago when after 18 years off of doing ayahuasca i jumped back into it because i reconnected with veterans and started my second round of healing and it was on the second day of a three-day ceremony and the first day felt like it was just getting cleaned out at the cellular level, at the DNA level, subatomic level, like you're getting your hard yeah. drive defragged yeah. and just getting you all scrubbed down. And the next day, the medicine was like polishing my heart and then cleaning it and then putting and then blowing it up and then taking those pieces and, you know, cleaning them and putting it back together. It's just like process over and over again and i said kind of to myself to the medicine however you want to look at all of it let's take this thing out for a ride let's like take this heart that i've now polished up and yeah. put back together blown apart uh and i immediately went after that expressing that intention i 
immediately went to the space, which it seemed like a like a holographic memory, you know, where I couldn't tell if I'd moved there in space time or mm. what it was, but like, you know, like an episodic memory is almost like a file folder. You like have a picture on kind of like the logo for the thing, you know. Yeah. So I went that, but it's like this 3D yeah. holographic object. It was like an immersive completely. memory. And yeah. I was there as a witness, but it was me as a, being sodomized by this uh, older boy. Mm. And then you're just like, first off, you're just, you're blown away in amazement. It's also the sort of rubbernecking or pornographic where you're just like, whoa, what? Am I, am I really looking at this? Am I really seeing this, you know, of just mm. that kind of intensity? And so then my emotional attention focused on this younger version of me, which, of course, I have a lot of uh, empathy for, although it's been part of the work is working on self-love and self-acceptance and all that. But, you know, I saw myself and then I had compassion for myself, which, you know, you can think of like guilt or shame, right, of somehow seeing you allowed yourself to be in a situation or you allowed yourself to be, uh, you know, abused or defiled or whatever. And uh, I shifted my compassion then to this person. And under the medicine, my thinking was, "Why why are you doing this? Like, you know? Not questioning him as much as in defense is saying like this this doesn't there's a reason mm. what is the reason that you're doing this mm. you know? and when I shifted my compassion towards him to to say that there's something you know in your story that this you know that this that this is connected to this isn't your action, your behavior isn't in a in a vacuum, you know. Uh, and yeah, I had, when I had compassion for him, like the whole episodic memory just literally evaporated. It was like, and it was, yeah, that was it. It was like done, like, like complete. It was yeah. me finding a way to forgive him, to let go his injury to me. Uh, allowed me to let go of the injury to myself and you know, to accept myself and to let go of my guilt about inj- allowing, uh, you know, about perceived allowing injury to myself or shame of disappointment in myself, you know, or grief that I had, sadness that I'd lost part of myself or I'd let, you know, let this, let this happen to me. And so, yeah, and that, and then you know, and then I went and did other work and other stuff, and had another day. And so the uh, the second one that I mentioned that mm-hmm. was in Peru, and I went down there for. But for this first one, were you not? Um, yeah. When you said I wanted to take this new polished and reassembled heart out yeah. for a ride, were you not nervous for a moment that all this work that has been done is going to be now? contaminated again by trying to get into like a negative well yeah that's a i didn't i didn't even get to the point it was no 
it was like, let's do something with this. There's a reason for this. I'm, I'm letting go of something. I'm, yeah. you know, energetically opening up to something. I'm opening up my heart. Yeah. Whatever all that means. And yeah, I'm, I'm basically, let's go do something with this. There's, let's go test this out. Let's put it to the test. And, and later I was just thinking about, you know, universal questions and stuff like that yeah, yeah. and getting cosmic downloads. And, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is something whose kind of weight and pain you had been carrying around for years. And this yeah. was sort of the first time that you deliberately decided to go into it with a very different intention. So were you not nervous for a moment there of sticking your neck out and going into? Well, maybe that one could say maybe that while I was on the medicine, which is down-regulating my ego, which mm. means reducing my judgment, and it's engaging other centers of the brain that aren't normally turned on outside of my default mode network, giving me a greater and more useful or maybe balanced perspective. Mm. And then when I can safely do that, then I can more easily look at yeah. these episodic memories, which normally would be too emotionally overwhelming but mm. under the medicine you have a safety of the container and the way the medicine's working to be a psychic magnifier but it is in a gentle but both direct way as possible i know? see i see and then getting to see that uh so there's an inherent hmm Balance in the medicine, I was going to say safety, but balance where the medicine meets you where you're at and gives you mm. what you need at the time and shows you what you're mm -hmm. capable of handling, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I didn't go and say, saying, oh, let's take this out for a ride because I yeah. knew that. I just knew that's what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> Intu what? Intuitively at that moment, I didn't have any plan. Yeah. I didn't have any plan. I'll get my heart, I'll, I'll get my body clean and then I'll be more healthy and then I'll get my heart polished and then I'll go. I, there was none of that. It just... Yeah, that was that was what was in my heart when my heart was yeah yeah, yeah. When I was doing that work, and that's just what my intention yeah happened to be. And, and there wasn't any fear because a lot of that fear was being down regulated, and also I was trusting the medicine. That mm. how's this? So, is that day I remember the medicine coming on was one of the strongest times ever, and it was just like pulsating. It was just like boom, boom, boom you know, just. And like this flower of life is showing up and I'm like, holy shit, I can't take this. This is just too powerful. And then I thought, this is DMT. This yeah. is already in me. This is part of nature. There's no yeah. line I can draw or boundary. So yeah. what am I worried about? And then that's when I got, you know, letting go into that possible fear. And then that's when I, after that, I was getting my heart polished. So yeah, it's a yeah, yeah. continual handoffs of letting go <laughs> yeah, yeah, letting go of the rung of the ladder to grab the next one yeah, yeah. but you have to actually nice. take your hand off There's, that's, that's, the, that's the thing and then put on the next yeah. one and then you can just keep on uh yeah. letting go but you have to trust that there's you know you're going to be able to get the next one yeah so i want to ask you about the other two ceremonies as well but first when you said that there were three you you participated in three ceremonies that each of them was specific to these three traumas. Yeah. The idea that I got first was that you went and consulted some shaman before and said, this is the kind of trauma that I want to do this ceremony for. So was it like that or was it just personal that at some point you decided, okay, and now I want to work with this trauma just personally on your own without telling. That's an excellent question because I think it'll help people sort of see about yeah. intention and the first, the first healing ceremony, 
Uh, I didn't have any real specific intentions. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, no one knew what I, if I had even a subconscious intention or need to address the sexual trauma, nobody else knew and I didn't talk to anybody about it. Although I did share that mm-hmm. with the group when we went around in integration, you know, following the ceremony, right? Yeah. To some small degree. Uh, what what had happened, and um, yeah, I'm, it's like I'm balancing my emotional <laughs> and uh, rational minds here as I go back and forth and uh, access information, and like the emotional content uh, gets uh, gets re- gets really strong. And then the second, so sometimes it makes it hard to think because you're yeah. going between your two sort of hemispheres. And the second time in the the healing ceremony was in Peru, mm. and both of these were like the second ceremony of three of three days, mm. and then the third thing wasn't wasn't specifically ayahuasca, so we'll talk about that. But the third healing ceremony for my around my sister, so in Peru, uh, the shaman, and this is all the same you know, shaman Carlos Lorena Chavez, who's in Soldiers of the Vine, knew that I had sexual trauma. I told him that he we, you know, and. Uh, so, what then he gave me was a specific medicine, Chuchuasi, which is one of these non-visionary plant medicines that you do a dieta on, where you take it every day, once or twice a day, for a couple of days as part of this whole 10-day retreat, where you're taking ayahuasca and other medicines. And it has more like specific, you know, body sort of uh, benefits that it can effectuate, but at kind of a more energetic level, it, like people might use it to get their sexual energy back or unblock sexual energy is one of the things that it's, you know, uh, known for. And so, yeah, he basically gave me that medicine and however you want to look at it, lo and behold, in the second ceremony, kind of more for me out of nowhere on that one, because uh, I had thought about this other sexual trauma before the first one in other previous medicine work. I just never got to the point where I was ready to go mm-hmm. all the way and address it. But yeah, this one kind of came out of nowhere, and uh, it was the second uh, sexual trauma. And uh, that one, I tried to forgive the ringleader of the whole group of four or five kids, whatever it was. Uh, and then I thought, well, he, I think this guy might be dead. How do, how, how do I forgive someone who's dead? I started to contemplate on that. And then I got to the point where I got past that and I said, okay, I'm going to forgive him. But then I just didn't stick, you know, it was sort of like just saying it and like, and I didn't really feel it and I didn't believe it and it wasn't true inside of me. So I had to spend something like an hour and a half or two hours, um, (laughs) trying to see him as a human being, which then could allow me to find a way to forgive him to again, realize for lack of better terms that nothing happens in a vacuum and everything is connected and, it's not a justification of anyone's behavior. It's just mm-hmm. some kind of like acceptance for yourself and yeah. understanding or, you know, uh, it's hard to find words for Realizing, it. so I was thinking mm-hmm. about this when you were telling me and maybe part of that is realizing that the incidents, this is true in general in life, I feel, that the incident was not as personal yeah, as you imagine, I mean, it had a lot less to do with you being you and him, and it was some. It was not really so much about like there's something about you that makes you. Yeah. It's a whole cocktail of prior causes that 
that's great. Cocktail uh, of prior co- yeah, in, in And in many ways, if you can, for a moment, if one can try to put themselves in the mind of the perpetrator of the worst crimes, yes, they yeah. will find that in many ways they are more helpless than the next person from preventing themselves from committing uh, uh, the, sure. the, the sins that they do. I remember the first time that I did shrooms, something happened to me that I would not have predicted. I felt compassion for Donald Trump. <laughs> the and, true test of the medicine. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, the latest shibboleth. <laughs> in some way, and, and it has stuck with me in some ways. I mean, I yeah, understand what you mean yeah. when you say that this is not a way to justify what they're doing. No, no, but no. it's a way to see through the you know, the, the, the evilness of their actions that would normally cause you to have this feeling of judgment, seeing through that into the pain and helplessness. And I kind of realized, oh, this person, Donald Trump, he, I have something that he doesn't have, which is that he doesn't, he is so lacking in love. He surrounds himself with friends that he has to pay in order for them to agree with him. He has to buy a wife. And it's because... Despite all his riches and power, he is deprived of something that is so readily available to even the poorest man on the street. And uh, so I was like, wow, it must be... I don't want to be Donald Trump. I mean, I just felt like this compassion. And it's not something that I chose. There is no way that in the rest of my life I was oriented towards wanting to feel that. (laughs) But it just kind of helplessly happened. And I looked around at my friend, and who's kind of pretty uh, a pretty politically charged person, and I just kind of apologetically told him, "Hey, I think I'm feeling compassion for Donald Trump, man. <laughs> I can't I can't help it." <laughs> He's like, "You should see a doctor because they give you a prescription for that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think he's he turns out to be a mirror, which is me a great mirror mm. uh, metaphor for this whole thing and for the medicine as a mirror. It's not that people that he's a has been uh, has misogynist behavior, right, or yeah. racist behavior, or things like that. It's more he's a mirror, and people are seeing that of yeah. their themselves in him, yeah. and that's really what's uh, coming out. You know, it's not so much that Donald Trump is a air quotes bad guy. It's just that uh, he's acting badly, and certain people are saying. That's okay because he's giving me what what I want or other people are, you know, uh, not being able to see past his behavior and, you know, see that, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's got some spiritual uh, hole he needs to fill. (laughs) Yeah. So if you could tell me about the the ceremony that you underwent for... uh, for the third one? Yeah, the third one. Yes, yeah, I think it'll be fun because I don't know that I've ever yeah. talked about it or yeah. to, so today in, in any kind of detail anyway. Um, so this was uh, a couple weeks after the ayahuasca ceremonies, the three days of ayahuasca, three ceremonies you know, every weekend that I did the first uh, healing on. And, uh, yeah, so that, so I guess I get from, if they're sequencing, that's true. So it's, uh, <laughs> I got two and three in you know, different order, but in any case, 
if you want to do them in, in timeline. This was a couple weeks after I did ayahuasca. Mm. I'd resolved this first sexual trauma. And I was going to Boulder, Colorado, where cannabis is legal. Yeah, so, yeah. wow, I wasn't yeah. breaking the law to use <laughs> cannabis, marijuana, weed. <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah. i got a can conscious cannabis ceremony from this person who was like a healer but like you know trained what was his actual it was like he had a master's degree from Naropa, and i can't remember you know what, what exactly what it was but he knew yoga and body work and breath work and all this stuff and so he used cannabis in his living room with a uh, or, or sort of like a timed playlist and it's going to be a guided meditation where he's talking to me but I'm not necessarily at all talking back to him. So he's like mm. taking me through my body, right? And pay attention to, you know, focus on this and you know, do this. And then he asked me things. So what happened was uh, I took just like seven puffs of this cannabis, you know? Sure, it was high end or like, well, you know, well cultivated by what more to mean. And, uh, but it wasn't anything beyond just cannabis. Mm. And I... Uh, through this like ritual, you know, and the rapport I felt with him and comfort and all, uh, after these seven deep puffs and my breathing, I entered into a psychedelic space like you might be on one of these other medicines. Yeah. And first, that just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, how, you know, I, mean, I knew the the power of cannabis, but I'd never mm. been in this space that just seemed so like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ayahuasca or yeah, yeah, mushrooms yeah. or something like that. So uh, he was working me through my body, starting with my feet. It's like attention to your feet. Like, and so I'm literally you know, getting in tune with my own body. The energy moving through my own body is working up. And we do the whole body. And then I'm like feeling really relaxed and clear. Mm. And then now that I'm clear, he says... Where does your, you know, where does your attention go? And it went like right to my heart. <laughs> uh, and right the same heart I'd taken out for a ride uh, a couple weeks before. And then I thought about my parents and I just like felt the weight of the death of my sister, like on my family, right? On me and on my whole family. Yeah. And then some of the ego stuff that I've since worked on around, you know, why can't my parents get over that? Yeah, versus yeah, yeah. me get over that, you know, which I eventually got to, but just those kind of initial feelings. And so my first step there, though, was letting go of that for myself, of letting go of my attachment to that story. And I had like a full, you know, Kundalini experience where I sat straight up and, you know, my chakra centers all the way up and down my spine just completely opened up and all this energy was like coming out of my head like fireworks and, uh, and this guy's seen the whole thing too. Later, as we're you know aligning what both of us experienced while this was going on, this is all from cannabis. Although when I first went into the psychedelic space, Mother Ayahuasca came along as an attending physician, and, and I'm kind of like, how is this even possible? How am I tuning into yeah. some previous medicine? You know, but yeah. I guess it's the the you know I, mother grandmother whatever you like mother ayahuasca was the uh, car mechanic and she tuned up my heart and then yeah. it was able to go out and with some new capacity yeah have you know uh <laughs> cannabis santa maria come along and uh you know do some work and she was just there in the background. And I say all those kind of names, you know, both out of respect and jokingly. It's it's all metaphors, you know. Mm -hmm. These are all medicine. It's, it's a mirror to allow you to see yourself. And so yeah. whether you experience that as a 
different part of the cosmos or you it's really really no different <laughs> yeah yeah i remember that there were a couple of times when after having experienced um mdma ecstasy yeah. a couple times i had done i had taken weed i'd smoked weed and a couple times it happened that some kind of valve open or like yeah. slip yeah. into the mdma mode yeah Reactivation and, would be the technical word. Yeah, people, and it had know. never happened before on yeah. weed, so I was like <laughs> very um, surprised and excited. Yeah, I was excited because I really, very dearly value the kind of frame of mind that ecstasy puts me in. It was very informative. It was a very informative experience, and throughout the last several years, I have been trying to very deliberately steer my life in the direction of the of being the kind of person that I can be when I'm on ecstasy. So, but I don't want to keep using the drug. Yeah, there is a yeah. very clear indication when I'm on ecstasy that I can be this. It's possible to be this yeah. person without the drug. And in some ways, just like it's moving a veil apart and showing me this is the possibility. And, and a way to temporarily practice in there. Yeah. Kind of like envisioning, right? Putting yourself in that place. Yeah. So you can actually experience that. And it's once... Once you know it's possible, yeah. you can tap back into it again. Yeah, yeah. Like doing a snowboarding trick or skateboarding trick. Once you finally yeah. do it and you get the muscle memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then cannabis turns out, yeah. in my personal experience, others as well, yeah. to be a powerful reactivator of, yeah, yeah. of any of yeah. these medicines. Yeah. So since ecstasy is synthetic, <laughs> I can't... Or semi-synthetic. You know. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and also because there's like a, you know, a down... That happens at the end of the high. Yeah. Come That's down. why I can't like, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to like take it too much. Yeah. So when the, these couple of experiences happened on weed, I was like super excited. Like, okay, it's been a while since I did ecstasy. It's not like there's uh, that drug lingering in me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so my only interpretation <laughs> was, and it was a very happy interpretation, that there must have been some rewiring within me that has been left permanently not hopefully not just as a result of having done the MDMA, but having realized what it's like and starting to reorient my life, that there is some change that's actually happening uh, and that will stay regardless of whether I do the drug or not. And it's making it easier for me to uh, reactivate that on some other drugs. So I was like super excited. And, it, and it's funny. Well, everything you said is true. And at the same time, when you're talking about like experience that, yeah. your hands up by your head and like we have 10,000 yeah. neurons in the heart. <laughs> right i didn't know about yes that. <laughs> we have heart neurons we have the number of neurons of a cat brain in our gut yeah. so we, as, as i'm hearing you talk yeah, yeah i'm like thinking as well it's like yeah, yeah. you're literally retuning yeah. your heart in one yeah. way right <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then there's a permanent alteration of more powerful beautiful dynamic coherence that your heart can support and yeah. then this is this is the, the vision that I had after I, so I had this Kundalini experience on this second trauma, or the third, whatever, third trauma at this point we're talking, and it was letting go of attachment to my sister's death, fully letting go. And right after that, uh, Mother Ayahuasca kind of shows up and says, I'm going to give you a five minute class, like she did in Peru right after this other, the, the second, you know, trauma number two. And, uh, the the vision that I got, which I don't haven't had lots of visions under ayahuasca, but the, this very specific vision, which was under cannabis but tied into ayahuasca, so that 
rewiring or portal, whatever that it opened up, that got reactivated. And uh, I can see this is all, you know, not this is all metaphorically as a way for you to conceptualize it. I saw that everyone has this like uh, crystal like in their heart, and that this crystal is like a receiver, and you know, transducer <laughs> and reflector, right, of divine light. And you get this, you know, light from other people, other creatures, from the divine. And I can see this, like, bioenergetic matrix of light. And the whole goal I saw was to polish up your crystal so you could, you know, receive as much light as possible and thereby turn around and shine as much light as possible. And I can see this whole thing connected together and it's, like, all, you know, pulsating uh, light. So, yeah, I think we're trying to retune our human biofields, our human biocomputers to uh, maximize our maximize our ability to literally receive the love and uh, transmit it back out. Yeah, to be as transparent. Yeah, and, exactly. And that, exactly. As possible. And in some way, still, but it's like, right. It still sort of reflects back out, and however the you know <laughs> energetic mechanics of that work. But exactly. Yeah. So what you want to be as transparent as possible, letting it in, and then I guess maybe it's you can think of. That internal, essential reality that's inside of us, then it can shine out yeah. as much as it wants. So, um, you have said both in Soldiers of the Vine as well as in the Molotov seminar, uh, you said something along the lines of um, veterans will be the exemplars of showing the world how political problems can no longer or cannot be solved through the use of violence. Um, or, to, or solved by war. Yeah. <clears throat> is this an unpopular or discouraged opinion to have in the veteran community? Well, I'm, I'm in the process of learning that and figuring that out. And of course, my you, you, your quote of me there is really inspired or crystallized Thich Nhat Hanh basically said the veterans are the tip of the candle and they're the ones that have to show the rest of society mm-hmm. you know how to uh, transcend violence basically I'm sort of like paraphrasing something that he said and it's it's true mm. and it's our eventual beating and I said you know, transforming our swords into plowshares and there's a ton of resistance to it it's uh, probably seen as a crazy or weak or unrealistic idea. You know, it's like there's always going to be war. There's always going to be bad guys. (laughs) But uh, the veterans that I'm working with and connected to and supporting that have done this work themselves and have come back and they're war fighters see a future where war doesn't fit and it really doesn't fit today because it's not getting us our political aims yeah. nor is it are we able to prosecute it in a way that's any way uh ethical according to the like you know rules of fighting war according to the philosophy of like just war the wars aren't just anymore you know mm. and even in world war ii there's a lot of unjust things as we know atomic bombs and mm-hmm. fire bombings of dresden and you know it was horrendous so yeah, so I think that uh, the people that I'm working with are people that have gone to war, gotten PTSD, come back and hitting the bottle and other bad activities that are on all the pharmaceuticals. They try to kill themselves. Thank God they don't succeed. They find cannabis. They get off all the meds. Mm-hmm. Cannabis treats the symptoms of PTSD. 
but then they still have to deal with the underlying trauma that's behind that, and then that's when they need the, the deeper medicine. So by the time I'm connecting with somebody, uh, you know, the, the, the whole... <laughs> They're, 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 I'm just, they're like in a dead end, you know, they're, they're, yeah. it's, it's, they're on a pathway to destruction. So, yeah. uh, they really have no other option. And, and we as humans respond at best when we're under the most amount of pressure. So they have, they have no other option at this point. It's yeah. either killing themselves or being like pharmaceutical prisoners of war where there's zombies on these meds all the time or, you know, trying, trying these other medicines. And then when they do, it, it's, I don't want to say it's inevitable, but when they take the medicines and understand that they're part of a bigger picture and part of nature and can find a way to be connected back into that, then they can see beyond that. And these people know that the the war part, again, doesn't doesn't work anymore. We've been in Afghanistan, what is it now, 15 years? And it's the longest war ever. And yeah, yeah. We're not really any further along. And we destabilized the Middle East by going into Iraq and... Mm-hmm. Caused the Arab Spring and, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. caused all these migrants now to leave the Middle East and go into Europe where it's helping to support far-right nationalist parties come to power. So that's all they're doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it just, does, just doesn't work anymore. So yeah, yeah. so eventually they, they make their way there. <laughs> I see. So I understand that among your peers who went and fought, uh, yeah. among these veterans, there is not much of an opposition to... Yeah. this sentiment but as a person who actually went and fought i mean there's always so many talking heads on tv sure. talking about war politicians none of these people actually have to go out and experience for themselves what it's like so for someone like you you who was actually in the front lines who who experienced people like you to be coming back and speaking in this manner spilling the beans and, and talking this way this is not a good advertisement at all for the powers that be who want to recruit more people, for the politicians who want to keep pushing for more hawkish uh, foreign policy. So do you feel like there are any um, any forces from these authorities or any explicit or implicit um, contracts or rules or encouragements or discouragements that would want to inhibit you and your friends from talking in this manner was there ever a contract yeah. that you I, don't, signed I, don't like re- I really don't think so from the standpoint of this mm-hmm. war machine has a momentum and it's like a it gets a life of its own right and that's what that's what's happening right now so the war machine has just had this momentum after world war ii and yeah. they need to put the brakes on it and so i think ultimately those People want to heal the people coming out of the military so that if we are going to keep any kind of military going forward, yeah. I'm not a pacifist. We should be able to defend ourselves, but, you know, we don't need the military to fight World War III. They, we, can't, we can't ever afford to prosecute in the military, the Army anyway, for the first time, like I alluded to, is failing to meet recruiting goals. So we may have even broken the military at this point, right? In other words, where it's no longer... Uh, sustainable. So I think the people like in the VA, they, they do care. It's just such a bureaucratic behemoth, you know? <laughs> that, yeah. uh, and so if you can show them a way, I think they're actually very open to it and want to heal. You know, that, and that's to tie into the fact that war ultimately brings the planet 
closer together faster and spins off technologies like out of DARPA, the internet, right? And all these life-saving technologies. Mm. So you can get to the point to hook up the whole thing and realize war is not an effective tool anymore to sort out our issues. We're all connected up by all this pipe and all this... Uh, trade, trade exactly, yeah. and you know, and connections and, yeah, and media, whatever. Yeah, so why, yeah, how yeah. can you afford to, sh- to yeah. crap anymore in your own nest? Yeah, yeah. It just you know, you that's the thing. In the past, you could think that I'll go fight my wars over there. Yeah. Now everything's connected, just like those same soldiers were twenty four seven surrounded by it. The whole planet's connected. You can't. Yeah. It's you the butterfly effect. You, you can't know? shit where you eat anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. You're yeah, shitting the in the you, you, yeah. The whole thing is you. So there's no. Place yeah. the shit that's not you. Yeah, yeah. So be responsible where you throw your shit around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Among the countries of the world, do you feel like the United States is would take a disproportionate amount of the blame for propagating the war machinery? If we yeah, talk about sure. what's going on today, I think it's a it's a natural byproduct, right, of uh, World War Two. And my kids and other people told me I got to watch that video. Have you watched it online? This World War Two from the from space. No. It's like the development of the United States, but looked at from space, and goes through World War Two. And you just see how the U.S. has seen it from like the outside the globe, or you know, uh, has developed, and how the war made us this huge superpower. Yeah, and so um, and this is the warning from Dwight Eisenhower, right? Mm-hmm. Military industrial complex. Now, some of people call it the military industrial entertainment complex or the military industrial yeah. pharmaceutical complex. Or isn't it interesting that a lot of pharmaceuticals are made from the byproducts of oil? So you go over there and fight for oil and then come back and you're on yeah. the byproducts of the <laughs> petrochemicals. It's yeah. like a closed loop system. So I think the U.S. Um, needs to stop being the world's policeman. We have the best military in the world. We're not ineffectual because of the quality of the military or anything else. It's just war doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. We're too tightly connected. Remember, it used to be said you don't go to you don't go to war with another country that has a McDonald's in it. Have you ever heard? Of it? I think that was something like <laughs> yeah. Thomas Friedman said, huh. and uh, in that way, it's true, right? So uh, it says, lucky then. Well, yeah, India, India has many McDonald's. Yeah, now, so, so. <laughs> so instead of going and like bombing these places, go and set up. McDonald's franchises. And yeah. So, but if we're getting all connected <laughs> yeah. up, how, yeah, exactly. How do you kill go? them with French fries? Yeah. <laughs> go and build the infrastructure in Afghanistan instead of bombing the hell out of it repeatedly and then yeah. never building infrastructure. Yeah. So, but once you let, a, you know, a thought virus like the Taliban and ISIS and all that loose by going and destabilizing the Middle East, it just mm-hmm. continues to metastasize in these areas that have. Poor hygiene, you know? (laughs) And then, like, the ultimate sense of the word, right? It's just, like, a bad environment. To some extent, I would say that it's not like people are trying their best and they're constantly failing to diagnose the problems. I feel like there are selfish actors in the political system who know that war is not good, but they know that, okay, here's the enemy. If I can propagate fear, I can use a lot of different resources to my personal benefit, I can if I can create an enemy out there, then you will have to trust me in delivering you from this this problem. And sure. under those circumstances, there's a lot of accumulations of power that I can engage in. Well, it's a basic concept of projecting the evil out onto someone else, which is another country. The other problem is again, Eisenhower identified this. 
calling out the military industrial complex. Mm. Most every congressional district in, district in the country has some sort of part that makes a part for the defense industry. So every congressman is going to, no matter what, fight like hell if anybody says, we're going to cut off the so-and-so program, and it's like they make the whatever engine yeah. for that, or maybe they make the whole thing. Yeah. So the defense industry has been brilliant in that, right, of yeah. diversifying their political reach. And uh, the other part is... Uh, Help me out here now. I'm trying to remember what the other part was. We're talking. Uh, it'll come back to me. <laughs> oh, well, I was in general talking about how this, uh, the, the fact that this war machine is going on is not simply an innocent failure to diagnose the problem. There's Yeah, and then I was going to say, so you have, you have this undue power. I mean, people don't think about, do people think about that General Electric owns NBC? Hmm. How do you trust that NBC doesn't have any influence and mm. their reporting yeah when the company that makes all these engines that made the engines for the Blackhawk <laughs> has a vested interest in that so that's the thing is you know uh, how do we repurpose the war machine into something else into making drones and robots mm. to plant <laughs> and you know it's, it's not it's not a failure of capability it's just so far a failure of imagination and people are just Addicted to the war machine, so you have corporations that obviously are, and then you have that money goes to senators, and you know it's no one wants to appear soft on national security, mm -hmm. but yeah, now now my brain comes back. It's the uh, whole projection yeah. that evil is outside of you, and you project it onto somebody else. Yeah, in this case, another part of the world. But now, since we're all connected, it's it's you. You're projecting it back right on yourself, and yeah. you know you. You are your own enemy, so uh, there's no such thing as evil outside of you. It's you know, mm -hmm. it's the potential exists for it in everyone. So. Yeah, yeah. But you, it's a lot easier to you know point out the problems of yeah. Iran instead of fix the roads here and help people with healthcare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny how um, the same psychological mechanisms that are played out in individual humans also played out. Yeah, yeah, as above know, so I'm, below the yeah. microcosm and the macrocosm yeah that's what yeah. these are these are god problems you yeah know? yeah um there was a, a nobel prize winning physicist richard feynman once said nature only uses the longest threads to weave her tapestry and what he meant by that was that once you discover some deep principle or mechanism you will likely see it being popping up again and again in apparently unrelated phenomena. So it was kind of like a deep philosophical observation that wasn't directly scientifically motivated, but he had this deep philosophical intuition that um, there are these very universal qualities about the deep principles that you uncover. And he was talking about the physical universe, but I feel like the same is true for the psychological universe, the, the world of people, um, the ways in which we interact with each other are somehow mirrored in the ways that communities interact with each other or nations interact with each other. The same mistakes that we make as people are mistakes yes. that nations make. It's the fractal <laughs> hologram. Yeah. Yeah. Consciousness is infinitely direct, uh, nested 
in every possible direction. Yeah. <laughs> right? You go whatever you like, down, up, in, out. Yeah. There's no end to the number of layers yeah, in either yeah. direction. And it's all and it's all one continuum. So yeah, that's the beauty of it, right? Is seeing the same uh, patterns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have worked in a personal capacity with um, veterans yeah. with war trauma. But beyond that, uh, do you have plans to push, um, well, let's just call it an ideology of like the anti-war mm-hmm. um, through advocacy and political action in any form? Well, first I'd say it's, you know, it's not anti-war. It's either, hmm. I'd want, like to say trans-war, but now you see how words get hmm. used in the public discourse now. If I say trans-war, that conjures up different things but it's, it's beyond war it's just evolve it's the evolution mm. beyond war you're like we're having an evolution of money right now from mm. government fiat currencies towards more highly distributed you mm. know forms of uh, cryptocurrency mm. so well, it's very exciting that you bring that up by the way because <laughs> i've had several conversations on my podcast i give a Molotov seminar on cryptocurrency <laughs> myself by the way anyway yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> so funny. so uh, yeah, do I? Am I trying to form a cult? And what are my ulterior <laughs> <Yeah>. motives? <laughs> uh, no, best I best I know it of myself. I'm not. What I'm trying to do is just empower veterans to heal themselves. Yeah. Uh, traditional societies, let's say Native Americans, from what we know, they would fight mm. with other tribes, and when the warriors came back, they would the tribe that they were part of would segregate them mm. and go make them go through purification rituals and ceremonies mm. to reintegrate them back into the tribe, which is to say that bad stuff you did over there, yeah. which at that point they're viewing as a necessary evil. Mm. We don't want to infect, yeah. contaminate our sacred space here, which is all us hanging out together and being in families and being a community and growing and, you know, farming, whatever we do. And so, they would uh, go through that process, and our society doesn't have that. So we don't mm. even have the rite of passage, and a lot of people join the military to get that, and then they come back, and they're not reintegrated. They're made into pharmaceutical prisoners of war. From my perspective, if they can get these medicines, they're a buried treasure. Their veterans were 7% of the population, something on that order. So these are people that have already, in some level, whatever their motivations, dedicated to service, hopefully dedicated to a higher calling, want to really serve the the greater good mm. and it's the right thing to do to we sent them we need to give them a chance to reintegrate but when you allow these people give the people support help them reintegrate and they get that healing they get that empowerment and then they go and do amazing stuff just right out of the gate that's not around any particular you know ideology or mm. movement or belief system or anything they're just more healthy, empowered individuals, and then they can help the collective. So it's, it's doing the right thing, and then and then tapping into that that resource. So the other part, though, I would really emphasize is that in the military, anytime we did a mission, we would conduct then an after action report or after action review. Or you have a review, which then a report was something that would be potentially generated from that, whatever. But a report, a report back to the higher command to say, how did the mission go? And this is what needs to happen from the use of the military in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is, hey, our military is awesome in doing its job, but you can't do the job anymore in modern warfare. Hmm. 
it doesn't work. There's too much ecological damage, collateral damage. You know, it costs too much. <laughs> it really creates more enemies, you know, than it uh, kills. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not worried at all. And right, I mean, if our hope is that we're gonna, if 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 we give in that we're gonna be fighting against each other for the foreseeable future, what kind of yeah. what kind of future is that? I don't. Yeah. I don't want to be part of that. Let's let's find a way to maybe. There is enough to go around, and it's not a zero-sum gain. And if we work together, we can generate more so we don't have to compete over resources by fighting with them. It's just, again, it's just a failure of imagination. We we have the technology, right? We throw away 40% of our food in America, so it's not a capacity, production, technology even problem. It's a failure of imagination. So I've learned for myself uh, in having the, you know, the prophetic tradition as a model they're trying to follow. I'm like, what are these guys' magic? What's their secret trick? Because they use the truth, but they use it in a way that really is effectual. And sometimes they might get killed even. But, you know, most of the time they're able to use it powerfully. And it's vulnerability. Yeah. Vulnerability, transparency, honesty, authenticity. It's the only viable strike-first weapon. Yeah. Every other weapon, right? I do anything else to you, and your default reaction is to hit me back. Yeah. If I say... Here's who I am, and here's something about me that reveals some information about me that potentially you could use as an advantage against me. I'm saying uh, I'm confident no matter what. I'm just going to do it, yeah. and and, I, and I'm confident enough that I can handle that disclosure because I'm confident enough in my own yeah. self-integration responsibility. You know, so then that does is creates a floor for the other person can disclose something, and then you're heading in the direction of more openness and connection rather than yeah. let me get bigger sticks to beat you up with. <laughs> yeah. So eventually we end up with intercontinental ballistic war, yeah. right, and war games, and mm. that doesn't sound like a very fun end game to the to the simulation. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get or, to that. Yeah. Or is this, is this the war simulation? I think we're, we're we can go. We can do better. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it on the video games instead. It's like right yeah. beating each other up. Now we play sports. Yeah. You know, right? Fighting people in the battlefield. Now let's do it online. I yeah. mean, apparently it's fun. And, yeah. <laughs> And a lot of people do it. So you have a lot of knowledge about the traditional forms of medication that, for example, have, I mean, people took while they were fighting the war and they were prescribed after they came back. Yeah. You worked for Pfizer after you came back from the war. Uh, be, uh, yeah, that's right. After. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell me more about, oh, a little bit more about the chemistry and effects of, in particular, the SSRIs and opioids that you mentioned? Sure. And in doing so, okay, the, the chemistry and effects, what are the common medicines of this type that are prescribed today in America? And why ultimately do you think such medication is ultimately useless and harmful? Okay, so, so we're going to cover a lot of stuff, but yeah. Don't I can let, just I can no. Just, don't let me forget. It's all yeah. about it's all about off, off and on label. Okay. So if I put together a lot of things and I forget, you can just yell out like off label and it'll okay. Because okay. so I worked at Pfizer after I got out of the army in 1990 to 1993 as a pharmaceutical rep here in Austin, Texas, and also in San Antonio. Excuse me, calling on. Uh, Brook Army Medical Center. San Antonio is like four, five military bases calling on Brook Army Medical Center and then Wilford Hall over at Kelly Air Force Base. And then also uh, 
Darnell, the hospital up at Fort Hood, north of Austin. So while I was at Pfizer, we launched Zoloft. Not my division, but the company, right? We'd broken into different divisions with different drugs. And Prozac had already come out while I was a pharmaceutical rep. And so Zoloft was one of our competitors. And this is also the time back then, I think, I'm sure someone will look it up on the internet, but at least one of the first synthetic opioids, Vicodin, was out at the time. So this was the sort of rise, the very beginning of the rise of this, these synthetic opiates, synthetic opioids, whatever you like, and the SSRIs. It brings a really important concept of the placebo effect just into uh, view, is that the drugs had a lot of promise, and it even showed up in the sort of how way people responded to them, but then over time, those benefits for the SSRIs went away. Mm. But what these SSRIs do is they block the reuptake of... Uh, serotonin back into the synapse so they block that that uh, receptor site and that just means there's more serotonin in the synapse to be able to fit back into the other side where you're going to get a benefit from you know that the, experiencing more more serotonin which mm. affects mood and sleep and so uh and interestingly 85 to 90 percent of it's pr produced in your gut so mm. Uh, there's natural SSRIs, things that are MAOIs, like uh, passion flower, weaker, chocolate, weaker, uh, mopacho, the tobacco from South America, very strong, and then ayahuasca and Syrian root. So these are SSRIs. There's tricyclics. There's more, excuse me, old, old school MAOIs that uh, block these things, and some of them are even irreversible. Right, so you have to stop. Huh. Yeah, if they keep on going for two weeks. So, this so there's natural ones, and then these are these you know synthetic ones. That uh, what they do though is it instead of sort of boosting serotonin, they end up more like a acting as sort of mood stabilizers, but they just sort of crunch down your empathy. They sort of just they don't sort of they. They downregulate empathy. So you don't have the lows anymore from being depressed, but then you don't have the highs either. So you just mm. sort of take your signal, yeah. like you take your high def signal and you just crunch it down into the like the AM, AM radio. Mm. That's really the sort of biggest way I can describe it for most people. Now the uh, when they've even in the studies when they got the drugs passed, they improved like on the scale, your depression scale, whatever. I think it goes to around 150, you know, by seven points. So th these things didn't, the promise that they showed when people gave it to them was probably the placebo effect is what I'm really saying. And over time, they showed not to be really that useful. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people have some benefit from SSRIs, but it's a really small group. And uh, then the other thing is, so then, then the side effects eventually are suicide and suicidal ideation. Oh, because you okay. get that signal clamped down. And so you don't get the lows anymore, but you don't get the highs. You just feel like you're... Going through life kind of as a numb. zombie. Yeah, yeah you're kind of like numb. You're, you're comfortably how numb. How much of a difference would it make if I just like kill myself? How alive am I right now anyway? Exactly. So uh, an important thing to know, though, is for PTSD for the military, there's mm -hmm. only two drugs, and they're both SSRIs. I won't remember the specific names, but that are mm. on label for PTSD. And that means that they have safety and efficacy data from the FDA. Mm. 
that the drug companies have submitted where the FDA says this is actually allowed for this. Once you get a drug indicated for any one thing, then a doctor can write, that's on label, mm-hmm. on the label of the FDA. So the, you have this, and you know, I'm an, you have back pain. It's, mm-hmm. it's indicated for back pain or just pain. I, I'm able to give it to you. But all these other drugs they give, I don't want to know if it's hundreds, but you know, like 30s, 40s, 50s, those kind of numbers of different drugs they might give for PTSD, they're all off-label, which means they've not been t- tested for safety or efficacy mm. for the condition at all. So you have just these doctors that are beta testing pharmaceuticals on millions of people, whether it's the military or not. Mm. I, it's it, the majority of, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but the majority of written use is off-label for all drugs, but especially these uh, psych meds. Um, this is going to be the last question for okay. this this part of the conversation. Uh, it's a continuation of what we were just talking about. Um, it seems that in your view of a better world as far as drug regulation is concerned, there are some currently accepted drugs that would be discouraged or regulated or banned and some currently illegal drugs that would be legitimized. Uh, could you specifically list some of these? Like well, sure. I, I would be. My approach would be to less mm. banning because then it's the whole thing of who's deciding the banning, yeah, yeah. and then it's a government agency that's getting money from special interests. So you don't have a yeah. real unbiased thing. I'd rather have just more things, and then if you have better choices that yeah. the people can choose from, mm. like with cannabis over alcohol, they'll choose the cannabis. If you mm. don't make the cannabis available, they'll go and buy the buy the alcohol. So. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, I just think that and that's what happens. People self-select for better, better medicines. So talking about the ones that, that's the thing. Now we're swinging back the other way and telling people that really need the opiates that really help them. They can't, you know, they mm-hmm. can't use them or they can't access them as much, which is mm-hmm. just as horrible as, is over prescribing them. But the things that, uh, we need to deschedule, we need to legalize our, Cannabis, MDMA, Mm. magic mushrooms, Mm. LSD, DMT, that's what the active ingredient or one of the active ingredients in ayahuasca, Uh, mescaline, you know, that's in San Pedro and peyote, and then 5-MeO-DMT that's in the Sonoran Desert Toad and lots of other plants. And, And then lots of, there's all... Semi-synthetic and other variations and other plants like ibogaine is great for addiction. Mm. So we need to we need to get them out of the legal illegal category and make them descheduled where they're in effect then an agricultural product like tomatoes. We don't have to this idea of always having to regulate and you know, mm. ban you know the kind of part is the sort of like banning idea right ban is mm. no just uh, get honest open information about it and let people understand and. If you eat all the leaves off a tomato, do you know that you can die? Like the leaves from a tomato plant? No. Yeah, because it contains like things like some nicotinoid alkaloids, what they mm. use for, like for pesticides. So uh, that was the, the myth of killing George Washington with the tomatoes. Like the leaves contain other things there. There's things in uh, eggplants and uh, plants like that that have poisons in effect in parts of the plant. So. Mm. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? You can you can go grow poppies in your backyard, and I guess, you know, yeah. you, you can definitely find different ways to kill yourself very easily, but that doesn't mean we have to regulate it. So i just like to see a world where all those things are descheduled, and I'm seeing a greater possibility towards that where you have MDMA likely to be an FDA-approved drug given by a therapist in 2021, psilocybin to follow after that, we have ketamine, which is already Schedule 3, which is getting a lot of attention and use. And uh, cannabis, and maybe cannabis will come off the schedule through the course of the 2020 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But I think that that whole edifice is crumbling. Mm-hmm. With the opiate crisis, now they're talking about the benzo crisis. We've got a health crisis, mental health crisis. There's 300 million people across the world that have depression. So you have these mental health crises coming along with these... Less effective medicines with the natural ones having been made less available mm-hmm. for the purposes of making money. And now these natural ones are going to come back and save the day. I see. So you are <laughs> in favor of a world where the general public has more free access to the drugs, but also to the information about what the the effects of the drugs are. And you, you do not see the... Uh, you do not see much benefit in the government trying to regulate this space in any way. Ultimately, no, because, mm-hmm. and that's what the government is trying to do now, and even the people that are trying to get these legalized from the you know psychedelic side of it, they're still trying to medicalize the model. They're still trying to build a model. There's some kind of control and some kind of priesthood mm-hmm. and some kind of hierarchy, and I'd rather see a model where... Uh, there's dereg- there's you know, deregulation mm-hmm. and... Like you said, more information people can choose for themselves because ultimately people will do that anyway. That's that's what's yeah. happened with cannabis. That's what's happened with the dark web and the internet is that you can't just because you tell somebody that you know this thing is illegal. I mean, five mm-hmm. meo DMT was only made illegal in 2011, and DMT was made illegal in 1964, and then 1965 it was found in the human body. Yeah. So there you go. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 ridiculous. Every human being in the United States is guilty of, a, of two <laughs> Schedule One <laughs> drugs, five MEO DMT, and DMT being in their body. Yeah. Period at all times. Plus your cats and dogs. Yeah. Too. <laughs> they're they're high on the DMTs. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's yeah. all the questions that I had for this part. Hey, we're getting pretty close to dinner time, anyway. So. I'll, I will, let's pause here. Right and on, I'll man. Go that was, and turn that was great. The, the AC on because it's yeah. getting pretty toasty in here. That was awesome, though, man. That's the most comfortable I've definitely been on, oh, nice. on a podcast. And just your setup here and sitting next to each other. Thank you for joining Ian and me today in the Room of Lives. In the next concluding part of our conversation, we will talk about healing using plant medicines and the role of spiritual practice eating well, and exercise. Then we will dive into discussing the fantastic nature of reality and life that is opened up by psychedelic experiences.